Well, so grateful to Lacey, to Micah, and to Mandy there for sharing in that scripture reading. So grateful, in fact, to all of the families across the course of our summer holiday who have put together some videos at home so that we can use them as our scripture reading on a Sunday morning. Well, this morning we wrap up our sermon series. Hasn't it been a great sermon series? So many times we've seen in the book of Genesis the grace of God pop up over and over again. My real hope this morning is that we'll see even more of God's grace. For those of you I don't know, my name's Chris Brockway. I have the real joy of uh, being involved in the leadership of the church here this morning and the real privilege of opening up God's word this morning in Genesis chapter 21. Well, I wonder if, like me, there are some events in your life that you really wish you could forget, but somehow life circumstances conspire to keep reminding you of them. I wonder if you can think of some in your own life. Well, spare a thought for a moment for Abraham, because one such event has been captured in the Bible, and it's been told and retold, it's been printed and reprinted for distribution over and over and over again for generations. I suspect there are yet more, many, many more generations of reprints yet to happen as well. In Genesis chapter 16, before our reading this morning, Despite hearing God's promise that he would one day be the father of a great nation, Abraham gets impatient. So Abraham does what many of us do when we get impatient with God. We try to speed him up. We try to help him out. And Abraham fathers a child called Ishmael by a slave woman called Hagar rather than fathering a child with his wife Sarah. Now, this was not God's plan. Abraham and Sarah's lack of faith then creates a spiraling cascade of other problems, broken relationships and all sorts of other wrong actions that then go on to dominate the story that's retold in Genesis chapter 16 through to Genesis chapter 20. Now, chapters 16 to 20 of Genesis really are quite bleak. And they tell the story of a downward spiral of Abraham and Sarah's life. But then we get to this glimmer of light at the very beginning of chapter 21. It's the story that Mandy and Lacey and Micah have just retold for us. After 25 long years of faith and doubt, questions and struggles, in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 21, we find the fulfillment of all that Andy spoke about for us last weekend. Verse 1, the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he said. And the Lord did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. In other words, she had a baby in exactly the way that God had promised she would have back in chapter 16. By an incredible act of God's grace, it was during this low ebb in Abraham and Sarah's spirituality that God fulfills his promise despite the myriad of their failing in their lives. Can you see God's grace again here in Genesis? That's the God who we've come to know and the God who we've come to love. In verses 1 to 7 of our reading today in Genesis 21, we read about the birth of Isaac. Now, Isaac was born when Abraham was an astonishing 100 years of age, and Sarah would have been 90 or 91 years of age. I wonder how many of us fancy beginning our parenting careers at such a grand old age. 
when Abraham had already been drawing his state pension for 35 years, he and Sarah become parents in the way it was supposed to happen, in the way of God's great plan rather than of their not very good plan. I like to picture in my mind's eye here, Abraham stood at the school gate with his Zimmer frame, hanging out with all those kind of late teens and 20-year-old parents who were Isaac's classmates. Well, in the opening verses of Genesis chapter 21, 1 to 7, we unearth three different perspectives of exactly the same event. The first perspective, perspective number one, is in verses 1 to 2. And we see the divine dimension of Isaac's uh, grace gift from God here, Isaac being that grace gift. Isaac was very much the consequence of an act of God. He was the fulfillment of this incredible covenant promise that was made 25 years before. What God had promised, God fulfilled. He always does and he always will. And I really have a sense that that's a word in season for some of us this morning. You've been waiting for something for a very long time. Maybe even you look back over the decades and think, God, I, I really sensed you promised something. I just sense God wants you to know this morning that he's still that same faithful God. I sense this morning that God would challenge you not to try and speed up his fulfillment of something which will come to pass in his perfect time. What God has promised, he will do. That's the very character of the God who we've come to know and love. And then as we read on in verses 3 to 5, we, we come to the second perspective of this story. Here we discover the kind of lackluster response of Abraham to the birth of his son. Abraham doesn't exactly seem ecstatic, does he, in this story? Not nearly as ecstatic as his wife. His response to the birth of Isaac might well be described as one of aloofness or perhaps one of dutiful acceptance. Now, if you know the story captured in Genesis 17, you'll know that Abraham's already been told by God what he should do whenever a child is born. And Abraham just simply dutifully does all that God had already told him in chapter 17. He gives his son a name, Tick. He calls him Isaac. He gets him circumcised on the eighth day of his life, Tick. He's fulfilled everything that God needed him to do. But then as the story evolves in verses 8 to 21 of Genesis 21, we see the solidification of Abraham's lack of enthusiasm about this amazing gift in the form of Isaac. And we'll come back to that in just a moment. But then we see the third perspective in the story. This comes to us in verses 6 to 7. We hear the jubilance of, of Sarah over the arrival of this long-awaited son. If Abraham's response was dutiful, then Sarah's response is, is delirious. What we see in Sarah is the joy of a person who's seen God keep his promise to them. Not because of her faithfulness, not because of her obedience, far from it, but because God is always a God of grace. God is always a God of faithfulness. God is always a God who keeps his promise. And I wonder if you can think of a time in your life when God has done that for you. When in spite of your failings, he's been faithful to the promises that he's made. And it may well have taken a time for that to come to be. But after lots of lamenting, after lots of weeping, God has actually changed our circumstances into a circumstance of gladness and of joy. In our scripture reading this morning, amidst um, Abraham's aloof acceptance, we find lots of laughing. In fact, this whole episode is hilarious. But to fully appreciate the laughter, 
we need to remember where we've come from. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, you might recall that God had said to Abraham, I want you to leave your family. Abraham, I want you to pack up and go to a country and to go to a place that I'll show you. God's big idea here was that it would be God's people in God's place under God's rule and under God's blessing. But all that had happened 25 years prior. Now, 25 years is a long time, isn't it? A lot can happen in 25 years. Who'd have thought of online shopping 25 years ago? Very few people. How many of us owned a a flat screen TV? None of us. My TV had a back on it about this big 25 years ago. In 25 years, all of our children will have become adults. 25 years ago, many of us were feeding pieces of paper into a machine that miraculously, by fax, would send that document to, to somebody else. Now my children don't even know what a fax machine is. A lot changes in 25 years. And Abraham here, after all of this time, had made it to the place, the promised land, but he doesn't own any of it. And as for this promised son that God had said he would have, he just didn't seem to be coming. So what does Sarah do? Well, Sarah gives consent to her husband for her husband to sleep with her slave girl who was called Hagar. And she did that in order to try and help God out a bit because God was being so slow. And as a consequence of that act, Ishmael is born. And in a moment, God's plan, his perfect plan looks ruined. But God continues to say in chapter after chapter of Genesis that this promised son between Sarah and Abraham, not between Abraham and Hagar, would still be born. It was through this promise that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the sand on the seashore. In verse 2 of Genesis 21, the promise in the form of this son, Isaac, has arrived. In verse 3, we discover that he's named Isaac, which literally means he laughs. And he was the cause of plenty of laughter, as Sarah goes on to describe in verse 6. Isaac brings laughter because he is the sign that God is faithful. Isaac brings laughter because weeping has been turned into laughter. Mourning has been turned into joy. As if we could have forgotten these verses this morning that remind us that what was impossible for man, God has made possible. And I want us to hang on to that thought for just a moment. What seemed impossible, God has made possible. We'll come back to that. But there's a twist in the tale of this story. The sight of Hagar's son gathered at Isaac's celebratory kind of coming of age feast suddenly robbed Sarah of all of her joy. By this time, Isaac would have been three or four years of age. Ishmael would have entered into his teens. And it's very likely that Ishmael would have started owning for himself his mother, Hagar's contempt for Sarah and her son. And that can happen so easily, can't it? The hatred that we have as parents, the prejudice that we carry, can so easily be passed on down the generations unless we take the time to deal with it. And that's what's going on here. In verse 8, we discover that laughing isn't always welcome. In verse 8, we fast forward from from Isaac's birth in verses 1 to 7 to his weaning day. Now, in, in the day, this was a big family occasion. It was a bit like a child's birthday. It was an occasion which marked yet another step in this child's precious life. In verse 9, Ishmael is with Isaac, and we're told that he was mocking Isaac. Other translations, that was the NIV, but other translations say that Ishmael was laughing at Isaac. 
Now, you don't need me to tell you this morning that there's a difference between laughing with someone and laughing at someone. Most of us can tell the difference because we've either been the perpetrator or we've been the recipient of such behavior. Ishmael, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, is laughing at Sarah's precious son, Isaac. Now, never mind the fact here that Sarah was part responsible for this debacle in the first place. All of a sudden, Sarah has gone from laughing to being absolutely raging. Her contagious laughter has turned into this contaminating rage. All this is a bit like something out of EastEnders plot lines, isn't it? Sarah tells Abraham, verse 10, get rid of this slave woman, get rid of her, her son. No child of this slave is going to share an inheritance with my precious boy, Isaac. What a change in perspective. Hagar and her, her son were really useful to have along so long as God's promise had seemed impossible or hadn't been fulfilled. But, says Sarah, now that we've got Isaac, well, we don't need them. So Abraham, ditch them, get rid of them, do whatever you have to do, pronto, take them away. And Abraham here banishes Sarah's slave Hagar and his son um, Ishmael uh, into into the wilderness. And in this moment, um, Abraham's seriously conflicted. That's so obvious from the story. But even so, Hagar and the boy are sent away. Did you notice in the story that Ishmael is never actually named in this chapter? He's always referred to as the boy or the child or the son. And the contrast between him and and Isaac is sharp and it's clear. Ishmael always referred to as the boy or the child, the son. Isaac always referred to as Isaac. So Hagar and this boy are, are sent off with bread and water. But of course, in the wilderness, bread and water doesn't last very long. She's got nowhere to go. She's wandering about with her boy, so she just leaves this boy to die under a bush. What a tragic situation has unfolded itself. Why? All because one couple won't own the consequence of their free will decisions. And I just wonder for us this morning, are there any consequences that we need to own so that we can move on from a difficult past? Maybe there are. Well, here in this moment, Hagar cries out to God. She says to God, I cannot watch this boy die. And in verses 17 to 21, God hears and God answers. And then comes this incredible, utterly unmerited act of God's grace. God makes a promise to Hagar, which is for Ishmael. Verse 18, God says to her, lift up the boy and take him by the hand, for I will make him a great nation. I will make him a great nation. Now, of course, that nation was to be known as the Ishmaelites. Well, when we read this, this early soap in the, in the Bible here, with all of its family troubles and its laughter, you might well be thinking to yourself this morning, well, so what? What's this all got to do with me? This is just a story from the past. It's got nothing to do with me living in Christchurch or wherever we are in the world right, right now. Well, in Galatians, the Apostle Paul uses this very passage from Genesis chapter 21 to show us that as Christians or as followers of Jesus, that we're actually part of this story. You and I this morning feature in some way in this story as it's captured in Genesis chapter 21. At the time when Paul was writing, he was writing to the Christians in Galatia who believed in Jesus. They'd come to know him and they'd come to trust him. 
But then some Jews were coming and saying to them, look, if you're going to do this whole walk and relationship properly with God, then you've got to also take all of that Old Testament tradition and law, especially the issue of circumcision, and you've got to apply it to your Christian lives. That's how you become a real, a true follower of God. Now, they were saying that to be a real Christian, you first have to become a real Jew. In other words, people were being told, you need to add something to Jesus. Jesus, yes, but plus something else. Jesus plus my, heritage will, my, my inheritance will, will give me a spiritual edge. Well, to that, Paul says no. The more of the Bible I know and the more theology I know, then surely the more saved I am. That was the kind of thinking that was being propagated, to which Paul would say, absolutely not. Well, if I have a certain understanding of a pet subject and I become an expert on something, then maybe that's what is required for eternal life, to which Paul says no. Well, what about salvation by good works? Again, Paul says no. Well, what about speaking in tongues or being loyal to the Baptist church or to the Anglican church or whatever? Or maybe if I serve on the tea and coffee rotor, then maybe I'll be more saved, to which Paul says no and no and no and no again. In Galatians 4, Paul takes this passage from Genesis 21, and he says there are two sorts of children of Abraham. There are the children of slavery, bound to slavery by the law, that's the Jews, but then there are also a different type of children, and these are the children of the promise. Christians are the children of the promise. If you've come to know and love Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you can say with your head held high and with confidence this morning, I am a child of the promise of God that was made to Abraham and that which was made to Sarah. We've been brought into Abraham's family through this incredible work of God, which was just as unexpected and just as unbelievable as the birth of Isaac. Only God could have brought us in, and he did it in the most amazing way through the person of Jesus. We're the children of promise made to Abraham because of the promised son who was Jesus. Everything we have comes about through this birth of Isaac, which will eventually lead to the coming of an even greater promised son who was Christ. I wonder if you can see this morning that connection between the promise that was made, which took an awful long time to fulfill, and the coming of the Son, who is Jesus. I'm so grateful as a, a follower of Christ that God has provided for us a way into relationship with Him. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Paul's challenge in Galatians 4 is to avoid falling into the trap that Sarah and Abraham fell into. Things didn't look so good, so they tried to help God out. They tried to add something to God's already brilliant plan. But what they discover is that God doesn't need our help to fulfill his promises to us. And exactly the same applies to Jesus and to the gospel. We don't need to add anything to this amazing gospel to help God out or to help us be more saved. And there's a very simple mathematical equation which you can see on your screen. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I just wonder how some of this applies for us today. Maybe some of, things, some of us are finding things really, really difficult. Can I encourage you today to cling on to Jesus? 
Even if in your walk with God today, it feels like God is distant and God is not answering or he's forgotten you, would you please cling on to Jesus today? Maybe you have a sense that it seems like God is being slow, slow to keep his promise. Would you hear the truth this morning that every promise that God makes will be fulfilled? Would you cling on to Jesus? And maybe today some of us need to be reminded that we came, when we came into that relationship with Jesus, then we too have become children of this amazing promise that God made to Abraham and to Sarah. We've been brought into a family, the family of God, by an incredible miracle of God, which was achieved through his son dying and coming to life again after death on the cross. Would you cling on to Jesus this morning? Maybe some of us know what it is today to be weeping. And maybe we have a sense that we've endured weeping for a night, or maybe we've been enduring weeping for quite a long season. But would you hear the promise to you this morning, I sense, that joy will come in the morning. Joy will come at the end of this season of challenge. Would you cling on to Jesus? Do you know what we discover from this story today is that laughter is always on its way. As we rejoice in God's promise, salvation is promised through his son. We have reason to laugh. We have reason to hope. We have reason to celebrate the good relationship that we've been brought into. Can I encourage you this morning, cling on to Jesus. Because as the writer of the the book of Acts says in chapter 4, verse 12, there is no other name by which we can be saved. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Cling on to Jesus and try not to add to your salvation anything that shouldn't be there. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Just as God removed the God plus something hope from Abraham, so that in the very next chapter, if you read on, it actually says that Isaac was Abraham's only son. I sense this morning that God too would challenge us never to add anything to Jesus in order that we can achieve our hope and our rescue and our forgiveness. Jesus is alone uh, uh, enough for us. To add anything to him is not going to put us in a better standing before God. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And I wonder this morning whether you've come to know Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And as I draw to a close this morning, before I introduce our closing song of worship, I just want to give a moment for us each to make a response this morning. Maybe to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior for the very first time, or maybe today to think about our walk and our relationship with him and try and evaluate whether we have tried to add something to that walk that simply shouldn't be there so that we can help God out. He doesn't need our help. He's already given us an amazing salvation and an awesome gospel. So let's be still for a moment. Let's pray. And I'm going to give just in this moment of prayer an opportunity of response for each of us this morning. Lord God, I want to thank you this morning for this amazing gospel that we have come to know and love if we've trusted in Jesus. Lord, thank you as we read in these scripture verses that salvation is found in no other name. There is no other name under heaven by which We can be saved, and yet, Lord, we admit that sometimes we seem to add to this good news. We seem to add things onto our Christian lives to to try and make ourselves more saved somehow, or to try and help you out, or to try and be your salesperson. And Lord, thank you that you don't need that. 
And Lord, for those of us who have already come to know and love you, Lord, we just take just a few moments here in the stillness just to reflect on our own walk and our own relationship with you. Lord, by your spirit, I just really want to pray that in these moments you would just convict us of anything in our walk with you that's not quite right. Anything in our walk with you which is watering down this good news or anything that we've bolted on that simply shouldn't be in our walk or or our relationship with you. Lord, in these moments of stillness, work by your spirit. Bring that sense of conviction, I pray. But Lord, too, for some of us, it might be this morning that we've not yet come to that place of saying that we've trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And as we hear those words, salvation is found in no one else. Let's really have a sense this morning. Some of us are hearing that for the first time afresh, and we know we need to respond. And I want to invite you this morning to choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I'm just going to pray a really simple prayer now. And you can make this prayer your own. Just echo it in the quietness of your own heart. Lord Jesus, I invite you to be my Lord and my Savior. I'm trusting these words from Scripture that salvation is found in no other name. Lord, would you save me? Would you rescue me? And lead me into an eternity with you. I'm trusting in your cross. I'm trusting in your death, in your resurrection for my eternal life. And I choose to follow Jesus for the rest of my life. In his name I pray. Amen. Well, let's just spend a moment praying for those who have made that commitment this morning. Lord, we just thank you for those who have chosen Christ to be Lord and Savior, thank you that they are now children of the promise that we've been speaking of this morning. A promise which is awesome, a promise which is incredible, a promise that leads us into relationship with our Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord, that when we pray that prayer of commitment this morning, that there's nothing in our lives that you can't deal with to make us right, to make us pure, to make us clean before you. What a promise, what a saviour, for which we're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.